up my people? It's your girl E coming to you live and in living color from sunny LA. Yes, I'm bragging a little bit because it's really nice weather right now. And this is The Call, where we hear from wildly inspiring and dynamic women about their journey to answer their life's calling. I really hope you're having a good, good week because I'm not going to lie. I am. (laughs) I'm having a pretty, pretty good week. And it's funny. I was trying to reflect and think like, why am I so happy? And why do I think this week is so good? And the truth is it's because last week was so bad. (laughs) Have you ever felt like that? Like sometimes if you come through a rough patch or just like a down period or a hard week, the next week makes you really appreciate the fact that you're not in that space anymore. And that's that's really how I feel right now. And that's perfect context for this week's Ask E segment. Y'all know what Ask E is. It's where you send me your questions about life and work, and I try to answer them from my experience living and working. <laughs> All right? So here's today's question. Hi, Erica. My name is Sarah, and I'm calling from Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm in a really crazy, busy season of life right now, and it feels like everything is always going wrong. And so I was wondering what you do when everything is going wrong, um, either to make yourself feel better or to get through it or to keep things from going wrong. Um, I keep telling myself that it will pass, but things are just really hard right now. So I'm interested in the kinds of things you do to get through a really tough season. Thanks. Love the show. Bye. All right. So first of all, Sarah, I'm I'm really sorry that you're having um, a tough time in one of those periods where it seems like nothing is going right. Trust me when I tell you I have been there. I have been there more than once, more than twice, more than three times. I have been there a lot because I think that's what life is about. It's about ups and it's about downs, mountains and valleys. And um, I think no matter how talented you are or smart you are or good you are, like you can't avoid them. There are periods like that where stuff is just really hard. And so I'm sorry you're in that right now. Um, But the first thing to note is that you acknowledged that it's a season. And I think that's really hard to do when you're in the middle of it. I know a lot of times if I'm feeling like stuff is just not going right, I can be really hyperbolic about it and say like, oh, stuff is always going wrong or it never goes right. And, And that's not true. It's not always. It's not never. It's a period and it's a season. And that's actually one of the first things that I do when I, when I figure out that I'm in one of those periods is like acknowledge that there is a beginning to this and there is an end to this. And I kind of have to look at it like, all right, I'm going to lock in. It's like when you're on a plane and the captain tells you, okay, it's going to be a bumpy flight. You know, unfortunately, we don't have anyone who can give us that warning in life. But the minute you realize it, you buckle in, you brace yourself and you kind of say, okay, here's, here's where I am. The other thing I do is I let myself feel things. I cry sometimes. I cry a lot if I'm going through one of those periods, and that's okay. It doesn't make me weak. It doesn't mean I can't handle it. In fact, crying is one of the ways that I do handle it because I'm like, look, I'm going to get my emotions out because I'm going to make it through this period. And then I try to figure out, so if I'm going to be here and if I can't control the things that are happening to me, and I'm assuming that this is one of those situations and periods where it's maybe out of your control, I think, okay, how can I take lessons from this? Which sounds very cliche and very like pie in the sky and mature. And I don't mean it in that way. I mean, I'm thinking to myself, I'm not going to go through this for nothing. I'm going to come out on the other side of this better or stronger or smarter, tougher, whatever it is. And so I kind of give myself something to focus on. When I wake up every day, I'm asking, okay, what is the lesson from this experience? What is the lesson from this hard thing that feels like it's never going to end? 
And I'm asking that not just of myself, but you know me, I'm kind of a a religious and spiritual person. So I actually spend a lot of time praying. And even if you yourself aren't religious or aren't spiritual and, and don't even understand what I mean when I say pray, really what I'm talking about is like locking in and connecting and not focusing so much on everything that's happening around you, but focusing on a sense of peace inside of you, right? That's kind of the only thing you can control. And I promise you, if you do those things, if you let yourself feel the feelings, if you look for lessons, if you remind yourself that this is just a period, I believe in you. You will absolutely get through it. And hopefully, maybe, there are things that you can take from it that can better prepare you for the next time. And then you'll have a really great week after that, like the one that I'm having now and that I hope you have very, very soon. So thanks for asking that question, Sarah. For the rest of you, please keep them coming. I love it. This is like the way that I feel like I can connect most with you all. So I really appreciate you trusting me with your questions. And I hope these answers are helpful. And now it is time for this week's guest, none other than the brilliant, the beautiful Janet Mock. Janet is one of the most recognizable women, certainly trans women, I think in the world. She's an author, an advocate, a host, and she can now add several new titles to her bio. Producer, writer, and director. She's one of the creative forces behind the new critically acclaimed series in the FX show Pose. Now Pose is all about the 1980s underground ball scene in New York. We talk in the conversation about it, so hopefully from that you can get a better sense of what Pose is about. But for those of you who don't know what the ball scene is, it's a subculture of the LGBT community. I think mainstream America was first introduced to it through a documentary called Paris is Burning, which I encourage you to watch. But Pose is nothing like that. It is even better. It is beautiful and provocative and interesting and layered and rich. When we recorded our conversation, Janet actually didn't even know if Pose was going to be picked up for a second season. And since then, we found out that it is. Yes! I'm so proud of her and and the entire cast and crew. But it was so interesting to talk to her at a moment when she had no idea if the series was going to have the life that she wanted it to have or be as successful as, of course, she and everybody else wanted it to be. There were some really deep lessons in that. We talk about how to treat the work that you care deeply about when you put it in the world and have no control over how it's going to be received. We talk about what happens when something you work really hard on doesn't go the way you thought or hoped it would. There's a lot of good advice in there about being your authentic self, about not being afraid to try new things and seize new opportunities. This is a really good conversation. And it was so funny because when she walked into the studio, Jane and I have a lot of mutual friends. She didn't know that, though. So she came in, you know, journalist to journalist, prepared to just have a wonderful conversation, very, very professional and elegant. She had just finished a beautiful photo shoot that um, is running alongside this podcast. Make sure you check it out on marapeller.com. But she was just locked in in work mode. I, on the other hand, opened the door like my best friend was coming over for a slumber party. I ran up to her. She had her hand out for a handshake. I totally missed the social cue and gave her a big hug. And it was just very intense. And so she was awesome enough to like really quickly warm up to me and have a really authentic and intimate conversation. So thanks, Janet, for being really cool. And I hope y'all really enjoy this conversation. It's Janet Mock on the call. Janet, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being on the call. I'm so excited to talk to you. And we were just talking about the show just wrapped, Pose, first season of Pose. Congrats. Thank you so much. How's the experience been? It's been a marathon. It really, um, you know, kind of took over my life for the past year. And so to be able to say that there now is a body of work that I've been a part of, a body of work that 
for the first time really centers my sisters and siblings and community in this way is um, deeply gratifying mm -hmm. um, that there's something that we created as a team um, and it exists in the world. Is yeah. Great, and it can't be taken away. It's nope. there, it exists. It's We're there archived. Forever, forever, We're there. yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you, I think you first started talking and writing publicly about your story and your experience and your identity as a trans woman around like, what, 2011-ish, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 2011? Take yourself back to that moment. Could you have envisioned in 2011 the moment that we're in right now, both from you know your personal and professional standpoint, writing, producing, directing this show that really centers the LGBTQ community, trans women, you know where we are as a country, kind of your own level of visibility, your career. Could you have imagined that in 2011? Is that kind of what your vision was or has it all been a surprise to you? I think my vision was to be truthful and impactful with just sharing my personal truth. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I had specifics around exactly what I wanted to do. All I knew for sure was that I wanted to write my very specific story mm -hmm. and hopefully that would fill a gap and a need for girls who grew up like I did to have a reflection of themselves, mm -hmm. an actual access to a mirror that I didn't have access to. Um, and so I could not have predicted that our culture would rapidly shift and change yeah. and have, you know, really positive conversations around trans women's rights and people of color and, you know, LGBTQ folk. Um, I didn't know that that would happen. I didn't right. know we'd have more representation on television from Laverne Cox on Orange is the New Black to the prominence of Transparent um, to now having Pose exist in the world. And I didn't know it would be paired with, you know, the rising um, violence yep. against, you know, um, trans women of color specifically, black mm -hmm. and brown trans women, mm -hmm. um, in addition to the rise of Trump and more hate speech and more sense of shrinking who we say we're going to protect and who liberty and justice is for. Yeah. Um, and so all these things happening at one time was something I didn't know what would happen. But I'm glad that I decided at 26 years old to stop hiding behind my byline as a journalist and actually mm -hmm. tell my own story, make myself centered in that way. And I think that through centering my own story and my own experiences, I've hopefully been able to contribute to a culture that shows that you know my sisters and my siblings um, and my people are, are worthy of being seen and, and being heard. Talk to me about that process, and this is largely for those who have not read Redefining Realness and Surpassing Certainty. You've talked about your story and shared your story in um, really great detail and vulnerability, but for those who haven't heard um, certain pieces of it, mm. talk to me about the decision to center yourself and your voice and your story, because I know a lot of people, humans in general, then women, then women of color, then trans women of color, mm. whatever identity you identify as, a lot of people struggle with that idea of centering themselves and their story for so many reasons, right? Mm -hmm. Is it, is, do people care about it? Is it important enough? What does it mean for my own sense of privacy and self? Like, talk to me about kind of the decision making to go public with your story. I think for me, you know, going back to 2011, again, we didn't have all of these portraits that we have now. I think right. the most prominent trans person in America at the time was Chaz Bono, mm -hmm. um, Sonny oh. and Cher's child, that right? so Who long ago. I know, but, it but no, it wasn't. Um, but that was our most prominent story, and largely his story um, centered around transition and transitioning in public. I think that America, before Caitlyn Jenner came along, there was Chaz Bono. We can't erase that. That, that story yep. gave a lot of Americans who saw this child grow up in front of their eyes, transition 
transition. And so in that way, America was forced to transition. Mm. They were forced to deal with pronoun changes and name changes and quote unquote sex changes, yeah. right? And so I felt at that time that there needed to be a more diverse voice, a voice of color, a young voice. Um, there needed to be a voice of uh, young trans women who struggled um, not only economically through class struggles, but also because of race. Mm -hmm. The first thing I learned about myself in the world was that I was a black, um, poor child in America before I even knew that I was trans. Mm -hmm. And so that that colors and shapes the way in which I talk about these issues. And so for me, at that point, I was working as an editor for People magazine. Mm -hmm. um, I had seen Chaz and reported on stories about Chaz Bono. And then in addition to that, we were also dealing with a rash of LGBT suicides and, and violence and bullying that was kind of on the cover of People magazine with Tyler Clementi and, and Larry Letitia King, um, all of these deaths and murders. Um, around being LGBT um, youth. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't seeing folk of color represented. I wasn't seeing trans folk represented. And so I felt like, when is this girl going to come forward? And yeah. I didn't know that that girl would be me. <laughs> and so with my skills as a journalist and as a writer, I decided to step forward and tell my story for the first time, which is really the broad strokes of my experience of growing up in Honolulu, Hawaii, of transitioning as a teenager throughout high school, going to college, going to grad school, and achieving you know my sense of what I believed was my dream at the time, mm -hmm. which was to work for a magazine. And when you were here, um, the journalism piece that when kind of that began, you were here in New York, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you had kind of begun living your life as who you are and who you, sh you know, have always known you are, like you said, around middle school and high school. And so you had that experience early enough so that mm. when you came to New York, I think I've seen you say it, like you were able to kind of just live um, for all intents and purposes, at least from the outside looking in, like Cardi B says, as a regular schmegular 21 year old mm -hmm. woman, right? Mm. Um, so there's the kind of intellectual thought process that you went through to tell your story, right? There's a need for this voice in the world. I guess that needs to be me. Mm. But were you concerned about, I mean, the, the personal part of that, that, that how, how this could shape your life, your career, and it has shaped your career in, in beautiful ways, at least from the outside looking in. Um, but you probably didn't know what that was going to mean. So what, what were you weighing at the time when you made the decision to do that? I think I was weighing the... Um going from being someone who reported on other people's lives mm -hmm. to actually becoming the subject. So the person um, asking the questions versus answering the questions. And so for me, that was probably the biggest distinction and, and thing that scared me the most. I think yeah. I also probably was still fearful because I internalized through a transphobic society that um, I would possibly be pushed out. Mm -hmm, I would, mm -hmm. you know, possibly lose my job if I told the truth. I would not be able to have career opportunities. And everything was kind of the complete opposite was that my world opened up when yeah. I decided to embrace my truth and share my truth um, and do the work that I do through storytelling. But I think about being that 26 year old girl who hadn't written a word of her story yet, mm -hmm. right? Um, and being like every writer, um, being faced with. Um, the blank page and having to face yeah, yourself. It's terrifying. Yeah. I just and, finished doing it and it's, yeah. it's hard. And filling, you know, that page yeah. um, and being judged by that cursor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, for great possibility, but also like nothing could come out right and it could all be crap. So for me, it, it, just as a writer, I was struggling um, to find my voice and yeah. to figure out what my voice was and what I wanted to actually say. I love when you said that ultimately what happened was the opposite of most of your fears and that the world kind of opened up. I'm curious to know how you feel about the way in which your world opened up. And what I mean is 
the fact that your career now and your kind of public profile and the way people recognize you is so very tied to your personal story. And I know some people, you know, say, I love that. That's that's who I am. That's what I am. That's my story. That's why I told it. Mm-hmm. Other people sometimes, you know, and maybe it's not an either or, but wrestle with, yeah, but I'm more than just that part of myself mm-hmm. or that part of my story. I don't want to just be known as uh, an activist. How do you deal with that? What was so strange for me is that like I've never really like embraced the term activist. Yeah, I think People that, put that on you. Yeah, <laughs> because I've you know I've written um, my truth and told my story and probably uncover some things that most people who don't have my experiences uncovered like some harsh truths. Yeah. I think that um, a lot of people like that's she's an activist because she's telling the truth, but it's like I didn't come out and tell my story in order to represent a group of people, right? Mm. Um, or to be a spokesperson. Mm-hmm. But I came out to use my own personal story to tackle and combat um, shame and stigma, mm-hmm. right? And so for me, I think that it is a struggle. And I think that any marginalized person, anyone that has existed and struggled on the margins, and when they become centered in this way or a spotlight is put on them, because we're so rare to have access to that spotlight and take center stage, we're immediately, even if we don't want to, we have to yeah. deal with the burden of representation. And so for me, it's a duty I take on, yeah. but it is one that's taxing and trying because I just want to be, like you said, Cardi said, right? A regular schmegular girl out right. in the world who's just like trying to achieve all the things that she wants to do, who just wants to be seen as a great writer, yeah. right? Or at least an adequate one. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, you know, as someone who can direct a television series, who can produce, who can you know, um, unapologetically center her sisters in the work that she does, you know, because at the end of the day, I am my sister's keeper. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what I do. That's what I, everything that I do will always center uh, my sisters. And I don't just solely say that that's trans women, right? Right. But that's women of color, that's black women, that's native women. um, That's any woman who has ever been marginalized and decentered, right? And so for me, um, the work is always about that. And so like, as long as I keep on doing the work and keep on telling the truth, for me, that keeps me anchored. Mm -hmm. What people call me is not so much my issue, you know, and mm-hmm. how they would like to distill the work that I do or yep. try to um, be reductive and about categorize it. it. Yeah, that's their issue. It's not, it's not really mine, mine to say. But in my everyday world, I'm just, I'm just a, a black trans girl who told the truth. And I'll just yeah. keep on doing that. And I've been doing that since I was 12 years old and I won't stop. How do you take care of yourself in the process? You know, the idea of self-care is very in vogue now. It's not new, um, but we talk about it a lot more now. Which so, is great. I think we, we should talk about it, yeah. Oh, so what, so what, what does a self-care practice look like for you, especially someone who, like you said, kind of carries, I, you, you said burden, but also duty, right? That mm. you've taken on the duty mm. of, um, to some extent, representing, even though it's just yourself and your own story, your sisters and taking care of your sisters and being what people see as an activist and advocate, that, that can be heavy. So how do you take care of yourself in the process? I think boundaries help, setting up um, rules for myself, um, especially since so much of my life is public. Um, I, kn- I know that there's a separation between my own personal private space self, mm-hmm. the self that I share with those that I'm intimate with, my direct everyday tight-knit community of people who take care of me whom when I show up with nothing to give they say, they say that that's enough mm-hmm. who when I'm completely empty fill me up who um, allow me to be problematic and shady um, and petty <laughs> as all, all fuck um, <laughs> having that space and knowing that there's a distinct distinction between that Janet and the Janet mock that the world kind of knows and sees and yeah. that a part of that is where the burden comes in in the duty and the work 
um, I can't separate that my life bleeds into my work and the writings that I do because I am writing about the self, even on, you know, working on pose in the writer's room. Um, I put a lot of myself into these characters, a lot of my experiences. But what's freeing too, and what helps me take care of myself, is that they get to—I get to put words into their mouths that I'm—I don't have the cur- the courage to say. Ooh, what's an example <laughs> of something you've written um, in the show? I just think I think a lot of what um, Angel, who's played by India Moore, says um, about wanting love and about her own worth and about what she's going to accept and not accept from the guy that she's seeing, Stan, played by Evan Peters. I think a lot of the sharp, incisive um, reads that Electra Abundant says, played by Dominique Jackson, speaks to my experience. You know, like she says, a monologue that I wrote was something about, um, you know, passing, the complicated nature of passing Mm -hmm. and how trans women talk about that with one another, right? Cis people are obsessed with the idea of passing and like trans people and all this kind of stuff, but trans women talk about it too as a mode of survival, right? And she has this monologue where she says, um, I can walk on Fifth Avenue with my cheek, with the sun as high as my cheekbones, you know, and walk into Bergdorf's and be served like every other white woman in the Uh world. (laughs) You know, these kind of like little things are things that I would never say, but things that I have always thought, right? Or things that my sisters have said to me. And so... Um, for me, I think that the writing takes care of me, though it is work, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that I try to challenge myself to take spaces to write just for myself and not necessarily for an audience or public consumption. Oh, like journaling or just... Yeah, journaling. I journal when I'm not as... um, busy um i try to wake up every morning and do my morning pages yep. which i learned through julia cameron's um, book the artist way um that's one means um having my dog helps out a lot having really good friends helps out a lot um what else facials <laughs> you know? oh i just started so this is gonna sound very bougie in la um but i just started this facial it's called the transforming facial in oh. la you have from who, who? What is it? Um, what is the name of the spa? I'm going to give them a shout out right now. Or the what's the process? The what is it? What do they do? It's two and a half hours. Two and a half hours? Two and a half hours. Oh my God. It's oxygenation and UV lights <laughs> and crystals and extractions and massages. They put crystals oh my God. on your feet. It's gua sha. It's the jade roller. It is everything. Oh my God. Okay. I've only done it once. Oh wow. Um, it is luxurious. How much does she cost? She sounds expensive. Oh, she's exp- <laughs> she's pricey. She's pricey for a facial. She's like $300 for yeah. a facial. Yeah. Um, but it's worth it because mm-hmm. I don't take care of myself yeah. that much. I'm constantly mm-hmm. running and moving and writing and talking mm-hmm. and doing the work. Yeah. And it's funny when you actually care about what you're doing and it's a part of who you are, what you were talking about, mm-hmm. like your life bleeds into your work. I find that even in my quote unquote downtime, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm still thinking about something I'm going to make or mm. something I'm envisioning or dreaming of or what mm. I want the world to be like or the next project. So for my brain to actually shut off, yeah. it, it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. So you know what? And I, I think will what, spend 300 but what helps on it. With, yeah, <laughs> but for the brain to shut off too, like I, there's no phone in my bedroom. You know, wish, so there's a no... I wish I, wish I could get No there. phone rule in the bedroom. There's... Um, also, masks help yeah. and deep conditioning masks where the hair helps um, and shutting down and like just watching like The Real Housewives. Yes. Which one's your favorite? Um, Atlanta. Favorite? Okay, okay. Atlanta. Okay. Potomac, Potomac is like, is, Potomac is like taking up girl, a notch. So like, I'm very loyal to Potomac. They Potomac are is like shady. most improved. Like, I'm just like, I can't believe that they've 
they've great. slayed it the they're way that like, they've done. They're right under Atlanta mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you mentioned something that was interesting this morning. I was on Twitter and I saw, I think Mike.com is doing a new column called Transplaining. Mm. It's, it's just launching. And I saw they're taking questions from readers. And one of the questions was from um, a trans woman who wrote in and she said, look, I've had to come to terms with the fact or I'm coming to terms with the fact that I can't and probably never will pass. She's like, I'm, you know, six two, and you know, have have very masculine features, and I'm wide, sh- broad shouldered, and and she was going on, and I actually did not get to the point where I saw what the answer was and the response was, but I know it's something that you talk a lot about, and you just mentioned this idea of passing that you've written into the show conversations about that, and people, frankly, when they talk about you, one of the first things I knew about you before I, you know, was acquainted with your work was that oh my gosh there is this absolutely beautiful conventionally pretty trans woman that people talk about so how do you write that into the show how do you address those conversations that I think people are on the outskirts of but don't really know or understand unless that's their experience um, I think we talk about it um, a lot in the sense of like sisterhood and how sisters can kind of check and challenge you in ways that um, people who are not close to you can, right? Mm-hmm. And so like the intimate, the one of the radical things that we do do on this show on Pose is that five trans women are in conversation with each other often and there's more than just one of them in a room, right? Uh-huh. They're not explaining their experience to a cisgender person, mm-hmm. right? They are the center of the show and therefore when they're talking with one another, there is an intimate um, nature of that, and there's also a safety there. And so, when Electra, who is the grand dame mother um, of the House of Abundance, checks and challenges her daughters about appearance, about things needing to look real or authentic, she's speaking as the eldest trans woman on the show that she knows that there's an urgency around that, that she doesn't have a la di da view of the world. She sees the world as it is, that it's racist and transphobic, and that being a black person, a poor person, and a trans woman all in one body, that that in a society that um, does not center or provide resources for you, that one of the ways in which can make it easiest is to be able to present yourself as you know yourself to be so that you go checked and unchallenged, right? Ooh, I love that language, present yourself as you know yourself to be. Yeah, and so... so beautiful. Thank you. Um, and so it's um, for me, it's always about linking it to safety. It's not because um, cisgender women have been held up as the ideal, um, because if we want to be clear about that, it's always been historically, um, if you look at feminism and the women's movement, white women who've been centered and seen, right? Cis, mm-hmm. white, straight women. And so anyone that does not fit into that, and you want to go even more incisive, it's able-bodied, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. perfectly um, shaped, mm-hmm. um, not too shaped. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, bodies that are centered in that way and so anyone that doesn't fit that has to hold up hold themselves up to an ideal that's always showing itself through magazines through Instagram through all of this stuff and so beauty culture and pretty privilege is all a part of that and passing privilege is a part of that too right I always want to be clear in the work that I do that just because you may not be able to blend in as a cis woman as a trans woman doesn't mean that you're not attractive and mm-hmm. we need to unpack mm-hmm. that. So yeah. Yeah. you can be a trans woman who blends as a cis woman and not be pretty. Not all cis <laughs> right. women are pretty and or attractive, right? right? right. And so like, so we need important. to unpack that and stop linking being able to pass or blend in um, with being seen as desirable and or pretty or attractive. Right. right? And, and so the way that we had... a conversation, yeah. like you said, around how we, as a society... Um, kind of define what beauty is, where mm-hmm. those beauty standards come mm-hmm. from, right? Kind of this Eurocentric ideal and then how mm-hmm. how close you are to that mm-hmm. in, in whatever way. Yeah. 
Um, Body shape, skin color, hair texture, all of that nose stuff. Nose shape. I mean, mm-hmm. all of all it. All of that. Yeah. It's it's really, really fascinating. And it's so good that these conversations are now being mm-hmm. had on a, a larger stage. Black women in particular, but mm-hmm. I know women of all types have been having these conversations mm-hmm. in private mm-hmm. for years and yeah. years and generations. And like, Eva, we just had a... Um, you know, our highest rated episode to date was the episode that I wrote, you know, just like flipping uh-huh, my hair real quick. Uh-huh, congrats, congrats. Which just aired as episode four. It's called The Fever. And it really is all about the body. And it's about how you want to present your body to the world. And we, the opening shot um, directed by Gwyneth Horder Payton, who is my directing mentor, who kind of shepherded me through the process for my own episode. Um, we opened with um, this category called Luscious Femme Queen Body. Mm. And it's all about being juicy. And there is a character <laughs> called Juicy Nipples. Um, and these big girls who are walking and in yeah. the ball scene, they're the height of feminine beauty, mm-hmm. right? It's not skinny, statuesque, you know, Linda Evangelistas and Naomi Campbells of the world. Uh-huh. These are the women that these girls who are, you know, thinner bodied look up to and idealize, right? And so in that way, we flip the paradigm in a way to show that not just trans women have this, but black and brown women have that ideal too, Mm -hmm. right? And so how Mm -hmm. is that linked up to how now we have women who are, you know, dealing with, um, you know, silicone injections and body modifications and all these things. And so the whole episode is about that pathos and that ways in which women look at one another's bodies and want that and desire that is not for the male gaze, Right. right? It's about the, the internalized ways in which we look at one another and want and compare, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the the cycle of Instagram today, right? Oh Where it's gosh. like compare and despair, yep. right? Yeah, like I love that. You know, and how does that how does that affect us? And how does that affect the way in which we see ourselves and our in our image and our bodies? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm listening to you talk about your episode being the highest rated one to date. You said <laughs> the episode that I wrote, right? And you're talking about when you directed. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about this transition in your career. Like when you were first approached by Ryan Murphy mm-hmm. to work on this show. I think it started off. The first invitation was to be, or, or kind of opportunity was to be a writer, and then it quickly became producer, and then shortly thereafter, director mm-hmm. of an episode. Mm-hmm. Did you have any qualms, fears, concerns about taking this leap? Because it's, it's. I imagine and I'll ask you that too in a minute. It's different writing memoir, um, and even journalism, to to writing for television. Yeah, you know, Ryan approached me last July. And it was at a time when I had just finished touring my second book, Surpassing Certainty, and I really was asking myself, what did I want to do next? Um, First of all, bless you, because that's a good place to be in, right? (laughs) To be able to just say, like, what do I want to do next? Yeah. Yeah. And I was really asking myself that. It wasn't even an an outward question. It wasn't something that I was vocalizing. But I was asking myself, like, what do I want to do? I've done two books. I feel pretty good about, you know, my own personal narrative and where where I have that standing on bookshelves. Um, I've done a podcast. Um, I had been able to produce a documentary and do all the interviews for that. I had cover stories that I had written. And I was like, what do I want to do now? And so a lot of that was television because I saw that the most diverse stories, the most um, real representations Mm -hmm. of my people and communities were on television. Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. when Ryan called and requested that meeting, I went to Hollywood and I talked to him for like a 30-minute meeting. And he was like, you should join me 
on the show that I'm doing. And I was like, okay, we'll see. You know, because I was like, really? You had was, a we, we'll see moment? Well, it was like, slow down, white man. Why are you number one? <laughs> uh, you know, why are you telling this story? Right. right? I right. had to like really like explore that for myself. Like, who gets to tell this story? Right. And how will this story be handled? Right. Mm-hmm. And me and Ryan have had long conversations about, about that. And then I, you know, I met Stephen Canals, who is the co creator of the show. Um, Pose is based on a script that he wrote when he was in UCLA's screenwriting program. And so he had, it took him years to get this made. And Ryan saw it and wanted it. And he knew, Ryan knew that he probably wasn't the best person to tell this story. So he found the right collaborators. Oh, Hence, how important is why that? he, yes, why he brought in Stephen, who hadn't had much experience, why he brought in me, who had no experience writing for television. Um, and he's really empowered us. And so when he promoted me to producer, as we were shooting the pilot in December, um, I felt, you know, affirmed that my work was valuable, the things that I was doing, what I meant for the community, what, what my voice was like in the in the writer's room. Um, he then let me helm three scripts, which was great. Um, and he let me, and he pushed me. And yeah. that's where the fear came in. I wasn't scared to write. I wasn't scared to produce. I was afraid to direct. Mm-hmm. And I think largely because there's not much representation of women directing and right. definitely not much representation of women of color and queer or trans women of color doing that work. And so I was like, holy shit, this is like a white man's job. Like, even in my own head, I was <laughs> right. like, I, can I do this, right? And Ryan was just like, you're naturally bossy, just like me, and you know this story better than anyone else. So why why are you afraid to do this? I will support you. And I was like, I'm going to need your help. And so he let me shadow a master director, Gwyneth Horter Payton, as she directed my script, episode four, The Fever. And she was there by my side, serving kind of as my first AD when I directed my own episode, which is episode six called Love is the Message. Okay. Um, and yeah, yeah. Wow. And now we're here. What an experience. <laughs> so do you like it? Do you like directing? I do. I want to be directing more for Ryan Murphy Television. I, I know if we get a season two of Pose, I'll probably direct a couple episodes. Um, he's putting me on another another show to direct an episode that he's doing for another series that he has. Um, so yeah, I kind of have a, a budding career as a director, which yes. was not planned at all. I love that. All. I love that. I always say one of the kind of key philosophies, principles, or actually guiding principles is probably the best way to say it. One of the guiding principles of a life that is driven more by mission and calling and purpose than it is by accomplishment or money. Mm-hmm. Um, is that you don't necessarily know where you're going. You know kind of what, at least this has been my experience, I know what the purpose is, I know why I'm using my voice, I know how I wanna impact people, I don't really know exactly where that's gonna take me in the next Mm. five to 10 years. Mm. Um, So it's been fascinating to see on your journey, it really started with, I'm gonna tell my story and and we'll see where it goes from there and Mm. now who you are, a Hollywood director. I, I know it's so strange, <laughs> um, but you know, I've only the only blueprint that I really had to follow was you know, um, black women writers who came before me who had the audacity to tell the truth on the page. You know, Maya Angelou, Alice Walker, mm-hmm. um, Audre Lorde. You know, like yeah. they created a blueprint for me to follow, right? And that has um, been really the root of my public platforms and podiums, right? Like I've been, it's the truth. It's telling the truth over and over and over again, even in sitting in the writer's room with some of, you know, the most prolific, you know, like one of the most prolific television showrunners and creators, mm-hmm. um, Ryan Murphy, like sitting there and having to face him as my boss and be like, boo-boo, this is not right. <laughs> like, and I will tell you why this is not right. Yeah. And da-da-da. so like, it's always about telling the truth and never holding my tongue 
regardless of the consequences. Because at the end of the day, even if I got fired for that and I was let go for telling these incisive truths mm -hmm, <laughs> with mm -hmm. a bitter, bit of fierceness and ferocity, um, I would rather have that than have a cultural product with my name on it that wasn't that real wasn't, right. and didn't make sense to my community and didn't resonate. Mm -hmm. And what makes me so happy about Pose is that I've seen my sisters in my community show up every week, more and more people watch. And they say that this is so real. I've never seen myself on screen. I've never seen these conversations before. Like we had, we had an episode last week, um, the episode that I wrote, where there's tucking in it. And there's two different cisgender straight men who are attracted to trans women who both have different language describing why they're attracted to trans women's bodies. Wow. And these are things that have never been on television before. And it can only happen through being able to tell the truth in the writer's room and then putting that into a script mm -hmm. and really hearing my, bringing my communities and my sister's voices in with me as I sit there and write these scripts. So you right? use the word truth a lot, which is something I've been saying a lot too about kind of that's part of the calling, part of the mission is speaking the truth, whether it's popular, whether you're afraid of it, just kind of being, I mean, it's its the work of modern day prophets, right, is to speak the truth. But someone has been challenging me on that recently, a friend of mine saying, okay, but what is true in this society and in this culture when we are living in what, I, I hate this term, right, but this idea of being post-fact, where mm. what, what facts are don't seem to matter, where narratives are shifted and shaped every mm. day. How do you define what's true when you, when you talk about truth? Mm. I think about talk about what's real to me mm -hmm. and what feels real to me and my experience and my communities who often have not ever seen themselves or their stories told. You know, one of the things that's challenging specifically talking about television is that all of the stories that have come before this particular story have been written by cis people, mm -hmm. have been directed by cisgender people. Mm -hmm. And so we have a show that's not only written by, directed, um, and produced by trans folk mm -hmm. in the ballroom community, but there's also choreographers who are trans. We also have consultants and producers who are trans. We have 150 LGBTQ cast members and crew. Mm -hmm. So like in front of the camera and behind the camera, right? And so in that way, the truth becomes, it becomes um, what we show is closer and closer to what the community's reality is, mm. right? It's not filtered through, let me do some research and figure out what this was like <laughs> for trans people, right. which has always been the case, right? Instead, it's a for us, by us product. So therefore, it's closer to the reality, to what is real to us, to the language that we use to describe ourselves and mm -hmm. our bodies and our desires and our wants and dreams in the world. And so for me, um, it's about what resonates. It's about what feels real. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the idea that the ballroom always has talked, the ballroom community has always talked about realness. Mm -hmm. Have you ever missed the mark? Have you ever, whether, whether in pose or in any mm. of your work as a writer, as a speaker, have you ever said something that didn't resonate or where you mm. felt like, ah, I got, I got that wrong? So I think it's important mm. also to talk about that vulnerability for, mm. for folks who were out here speaking their truth, but also talking about issues that impact so many people, that no one's perfect. No one's the perfect advocate or the perfect. Have you ever said something that you felt like, okay, I learned, maybe maybe that wasn't the right thing, or maybe, mm. maybe I didn't say that in the right way? Um, not really. <laughs> not that I haven't made, <laughs> I made, I've made private mistakes. Okay. But I think publicly, because of that burden of representation, there's not much mm. room, specifically, not just for um, a woman, but a black woman in public space, a black trans woman in public space, mm -hmm. to make those kind of missteps and mistakes mm -hmm. because things will be pulled quickly. Yeah. Um, 
I grew up in a world where I had a grandmother who told me that I had to be twice as good to get half as much. Yeah. And so for me, um, when I step into public space, I'm prepared and I'm ready. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there were like some missteps in language. Mm -hmm. um, there was a time period where I probably wasn't as inclusive in terms of my language when I, so I, I'm purposeful about saying sisters, community, and siblings. Mm. Siblings being gender neutral. Right, oh, making sure that folk okay. who don't identify as sisters, right, but maybe trans femme feel included or non-binary or gender yeah. non-conforming, right? So like ensuring that my language is inclusive um, and that it is it brings in all of my people who I define as community, right? Um, I also think that we exist in an able-bodied society, right? Mm -hmm. um, so ableism is real. So being able to say that for me as a trans woman of color who is able-bodied, that I have privileges and access to spaces because of the way that my body moves and operates in the world that privileges me over some of my sisters and siblings who don't have that access, mm -hmm. right? And so being more clear about, I don't have to be everything to everybody, right. but I try my best to challenge myself to know more about experiences of people that I call community. Mm -hmm. Right, who may have different experiences and or intersections that I don't necessarily firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. And so there's a constant, you know, if you look back at some of my work, I wasn't as inclusive. And so I try my best to challenge myself to be. Um, and some community members have been very clear to, to call me in, not necessarily call, <laughs> call me out, out uh -huh. about like, what about us, sis? Like, you know yeah. what I mean? And so yeah. like, there are moments like that where I could have used more inclusive language, but I don't think that I've ever like, attacked or misstepped in, in, in that in that sense. Mm -hmm. So what would you say now to a young woman who is thinking about um, telling her story, who is thinking about centering her public work around part of her identity or something that is deeply personal to her? What kind of advice would you give her? I would say don't think about audience. I would say just think about writing and telling your story to yourself mm -hmm. because most often if you're a marginalized person, a marginalized woman, um, you've never really truly been centered. Mm -hmm. And so I think that to sit with yourself and center um, your own experiences and truth and story, I think that's powerful alone and that's mm -hmm. revolutionary for a girl to sit alone at her desk to tell her story. Um, and then you think about, you know, yeah. what is that product going to be, <laughs> right? And I use the word product because I think so often we put pressure on ourselves to make sure that like, we, we, we have an audience and that people want to buy it and da 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 and all this stuff. Um, and so, but start with just telling yourself your story and start mm -hmm. from there. And then think about sharing that with people, you know, safe spaces of community and then going out to like making that into something. Cause that's what I did. You know, yeah. I started off with just telling myself the truth and then the people in my life, my intimate circle, I trusted them to be my first readers and they made me feel more courageous and bold to be like, no, be more specific, go there, go all the way there. And you can always then pull it out when it becomes like a wider audience. Yeah, I know? love that too, because I think a lot about how capitalism impacts every single thing that we do. Um, and when you talked about thinking of your story first, not necessarily an audience or uh, the use of the word product, mm -hmm. right? Is that we're so quick to turn or want to turn who we are and what we are into a commodity mm -hmm. because we think that's how we find value in it. We, we find our own value based on how the world values something. Mm -hmm. And that means, do I have a big enough audience? Mm -hmm. Are enough people listening? Can I make money off this? Yeah. Can I see it? And it's a, that's a struggle we have right now with Pose. Mm -hmm. You know, um, our pilot didn't get the, when it aired, it didn't get the overnight numbers that we wanted it to get. Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of people on our team was doubting whether we were doing the right thing. And I was like, no, the people will show up. Yeah. Our job is already done. 
Yeah. We don't have to worry about the marketing department or PR and publicity. What we need to worry about is the product that we created. Do we believe that it resonates to the, the hundreds of thousands of people who are watching? Let's not think about the millions and the people in middle America and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff. The people who it matters to are telling us on Twitter through emails that this matters and that this feels real and that they feel seen. Why That's what matters. Do, why do we do that? There's something. Mm. Uh, why do we always think about the people? We think about the haters first, to be totally honest. A lot of times mm -hmm. we think about, gosh, there are people who I, I want to like this or see this or read this or consume it, whatever it is, who aren't. Sometimes to the detriment of the folks who've already shown up and said, no, no, this is for me. Mm -hmm. I love it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I love what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And we focus more on on kind of the reach audience or the folks that don't appreciate it mm -hmm. yet than we do on the people who are the first adopters and said, no, thank you. Yeah. You know? And so for me, I didn't think about those people. I did not. I could <laughs> care like, less no. <laughs> because my people were in my feed telling me like that this, this is everything. It. Yes. Um, and it's just shown the numbers have grown week after week after week. Um, and it shows that, you know, when you build something, they will come yeah. and they will show up. The audience is ready and they're willing and they're being the evangelist we need mm -hmm. to say that, girl, you need to watch a show, telling their mom, telling their aunties, telling their cousins, telling their best friend. And the show has grown and grown and grown. And I'm, I'm really proud of it. And I hope that, you know, the numbers prove that we can have a season two. That's all I care about. Yeah. So that we can continue telling this story. I hope by the time this our episode airs that we know. When, when do you find out? We don't know yet. Okay. <laughs> so we have no idea when we'll know. Okay. But I hope we will know soon. Okay, so um, last question for you. What are you looking forward to? Mm. One of the greatest joys of my life has been my ability to be able to see the women that are centered on the show, our stars, India Moore, um, Angelica Ross, Dominique Jackson, um, MJ Rodriguez, and Haley Sahar become true stars of a television mm. show. Mm -hmm. They all had their own experiences of being sidekicks on other shows, but here they're the stars. They're the leading ladies. We wrapped two weeks ago, and to see Dominique and MJ shoot their final scene and then stand in a room when we wrapped and applauded them, to see them address an entire cast and crew of people. They were the literal center. And they were talking about how now it's possible because we created this show, even if it's just one season. Um, we've created a show that now shows all these other girls and people who are watching that they deserve to be the heroines and heroes of their own series, of their own narratives, that their stories matter, that they matter, that they are deserving. And for me, what I'm most excited to see is to see that part of the legacy work of this series and this work um, go and have those legs that feed and nurture audiences who have never been seen and centered before. Mm -hmm. For them to be like, holy shit, I should start that screenplay. Like, why am I not writing and directing? Like, I can do this too. Like, why am I not, you know, going out for this audition? You know, we right. have background actors on our show, 150 of them to 200 of them in our big ballroom scenes mm -hmm. who have their first credits as actors mm -hmm. and get their SAG cards because they got their first speaking roles on our show. Yeah. And so that will it's have a trickle effect that will really affect and shift and change the paradigm of, of this industry. And that, I'm excited to see that. That's what excites me. Well, thank you. Thank you for being who you are, doing the work that you're doing, telling these critically important stories. As a black woman writer, thank you. Thank mm -hmm. you for the work that you've done so far. And I'm super excited about what's coming next, hopefully season two of Pose. Thank <laughs> you so much for having me. Thanks, Janet. 
Uh, I was definitely saying yes in my head so many times during that discussion, and I hope you were too. Make sure y'all check out Pose on FX. Binge watch this first season and get ready for season two. Thanks to you, Janet, for being so gracious with your time. This episode was produced by Melody Rao, by the way, who was in the middle of moving across country. So thanks for your hard work. It's published, as always, by Man Repeller, and I am your girl, E. Y'all, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. And until next week, you know what to do. Keep working, keep fighting, keep dreaming, and above all, keep answering your call. Peace, y'all. Calling, 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 calling you, calling you.